Good morning, my sweetheart church. That was exquisite, wasn't it? That was really something special. I want to encourage you to get your Bible out this morning because I, especially in the early uh, portions of the, of the uh, sermon, I want to take a look at some things that are interesting to me, some links that I've never seen before. Uh, often sermons end up being things that are interesting to me and you just kind of ride, ride along. I hope you'll find it fascinating too, but it will be helpful if you have your, your Bible or your app open to the last part of, of Luke chapter 14. So how many of you made it to one of the Taylor Swift concerts in July? Can I see the hands? Wow. I think you actually tied with first service. <laughs> I don't know whether to be ashamed of you or proud of them, but that's amazing. Well, then you were among the few that weren't there. Uh, the Seattle concerts alone numbered 144,000 fans. It is estimated that by the end of her Worldwide Eras Tour, she will generate $1.4 billion in revenue. So Taylor Swift is something of a hot ticket right now. 2,000 years ago, there was a, a preacher from Nazareth who was a hot ticket. Everywhere he went, according to the the gospel writer Luke, everywhere he went, this Jesus of Nazareth was followed by huge crowds of adoring fans. But Jesus makes it pretty clear. He didn't want fans. He wanted disciples. And last week, he laid it out pretty clearly what the true cost of discipleship is. He said, if you're not willing to love me supremely, if you won't follow me obediently, if you won't relinquish all that you have to me sacrificially, then you can't be my disciple. And he concluded that part of that hard teaching with these words. Find in, you find him in chapter 14, verse 35, the very last half of it, where he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Honestly, I've always assumed that that was kind of attached to the end of chapter 14, attached to that hard preaching that he had just done on the cost of discipleship. That's how chapter 14 ends, and then comes chapter 15, verse 1, and we, we assume it's a new episode. We launch into a new chapter, except there were no chapters and verses in the original biblical text. Those were added many, many centuries later. And so the original text as it was written, what happens in chapter 15 is linked exactly to what happened at the end of chapter 14. And the very next line we read after what I just read, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The very next line reads like this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Remember what Jesus just said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so what do the tax collectors and sinners do in the very next verse? They draw near to hear him. I'd never seen this before. I had never noticed how these sinners who had just listened to Jesus' demanding teaching on discipleship, how at the end of that phrase section, they, they move closer to him. They draw nearer, not farther away. They lean in. Jesus, his teaching didn't scare them off as it might have. They said, to, in essence, to him, well, we've got ears, Jesus. We've got ears. We want to use them. We want to hear more of what you have to say to us. 
And I just want to ponder this for a moment. You would think that Jesus had just disqualified every one of them. Because after all, they were the scum of Jewish society. The tax collectors and the sinners. Tax collectors were considered traitors to their people. And sinners was a catch-all phrase that would describe the prostitutes, the drunkards, the gluttons, the cheats, the thieves. All of them were, by their life, by their behavior, all of them were disqualified from good moral religious society. And they knew it. They, they knew who they were in the pecking order of things. They knew what other people thought about them. And now, they certainly knew the cost of following this rabbi named Jesus because he had just taught them what the cost would be. And so you'd think that these sinners would throw up their arms and say, I give up. Don't you? you you'd, you'd think they'd say, I, I have no business here because I haven't loved God supremely. I haven't followed Him unquestionably. I have hoarded all of my money and my possessions for myself. Fail, fail, fail. There's no point in hanging around any longer, they might have said. Right? But somehow, Jesus' hard words didn't chase them away. Somehow, Jesus' hard words drew them in. This high calling of discipleship that he had just outlined, it didn't scare them off. It inspired them. Somehow they sensed that in the midst of all this, there might still be a place for them in this thing that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And they were eager to draw near and to hear what Jesus would say next. And they weren't the only group. There was another group who wanted to hear what he had to say, but for a different reason. Listen to the very next line. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious insiders, they see these sinners that are drawing closer to Jesus. And what do they do? Do they celebrate the fact that they might get religion? Nope. They criticize. They grumble. And that is the same word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the, the grumbling of the Jews during their wanderings. No matter what miraculous things God did in their midst, before their eyes, they always grumbled. And they still were. So that's the setup. Two unlikely groups. We have sinners who are drawing near to listen to Jesus and religious insiders who are drawing near to criticize Jesus. He has a captive audience. So what will he teach next? If you have ears to hear, then you listen up, because I want you to hear some of the sweetest words that you'll find in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. Open your Bibles. You ought to have a big marker here. This, this is one of a kind, this chapter. I'll start again with verse 1, and then we'll pick it up at verse 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That would have been in quotes, by the way, right there. Righteous persons. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. One commentator, our beloved Professor Jim Edwards, emeritus pastor, or professor at Whitworth University, he calls this Luke 15, the, the lost and found chapter. You ought to remember this chapter, the lost and found chapter. There are three parables about things being lost and then being found. And you might remember the third one. I wrote, read about two of them just now. The third one was preached by my daughter, Rachel, back on Father's Day, remember? She preached about the lost son. We know it better as the prodigal son. And really, there were two lost sons in that story, weren't there? The lost son who ran away and the grouchy elder son who stayed outside and wouldn't join in. It's the greatest parable Jesus ever taught, by the way. I mean, of all the incredible teachings, if you want to capture the essence of the gospel in one story, this image of the father who is running with abandon to welcome back with open arms his humiliated and broken son, it is the best illustration of the gospel that you can find. But that's the finale to chapter 15. There are a couple of warm-up acts that lead to it. Jesus has shared two other stories about lost things, a lost sheep and a lost coin. In the first one, as we saw, the shepherd realizes that out of his flock of a hundred, one is missing. I think that's pretty amazing. That says something about a good shepherd, doesn't it? That he could spot, oh, I'm down by one out of the hundred sheep. And so he leaves the 99 in the open country and he goes looking for that one. And when he finds it, we read that he rejoices in the finding of it. And he lifts him up on his shoulder and he carries him home. And then he throws a party to celebrate its return. And then in the second story, we have a woman who loses a single coin. Palestinian homes of the time were mostly windowless because it was so hot. Mostly of dirt floor. So it would be easy to lose a single coin in such a place. But this woman sets herself to finding that coin and she is not going to stop until she succeeds. And then she throws a party to celebrate. One entire chapter of Luke's gospel devoted to finding lost things. One chapter that only Luke has. It is only Luke who tells us the story of the coin or of the prodigal son. And since Luke repeats this theme three times in three different ways... And since he started off this teaching by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then maybe, just maybe, there's something about this topic that mattered deeply to Jesus and ought to matter to us as well. 
So I want to look at just two points that come out of this incredible set of, of stories this morning. Here's the first one. The lost had to be found. The lost had to be found. They didn't find themselves. The lost things were only found because someone went looking for them. The shepherd noticed his sheep was missing and went looking for it. Sheep are notoriously stupid animals, and they often get lost because they keep their heads down when they're eating, and they just nibble their way off into lostness. Actually, I think a lot of humans do that too. They keep their head down and nibble their way off into lostness. They didn't even know they were lost. And then when they realize they are lost, often they paralyze. They freeze up. They don't know what to do. And so they do nothing. They just stay there frozen. They can't even walk. Now that's why the shepherd had to go looking for it. And when he found it, it's why he had to throw it on his shoulders and carry it back because the sheep didn't realize it was lost. And when he discovered he was, he was incapable of making his way back home on his own strength. That sheep had to be found. And obviously the, the coin didn't know it was lost. I, I saw a penny sitting on the ground the other day. I had to decide whether it was worth my energy to lean down and pick it up. And I do remember thinking at the time, if I don't pick it up, that penny could sit there for centuries, right? The only way that coin was going to be found was because that woman set out to find it. This is the first and most important point of this story. If you get nothing out of this story besides this, this is the most important point. The lost don't find themselves. The lost only get found when someone comes looking for them. And in fact, I think that might be the central theme of Luke's gospel. And, and I think that because later on in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we read these words from the lips of Jesus that are unique to Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the what? The lost. Say it with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I think that is Jesus' own mission statement right there in his own words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Seeking and saving the lost is the heart of God. It is the nature of God. And in fact, it started back in Genesis when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And then they thought they would hide from God. What a joke that was, right? And God finds them. And remember the very first question on the lips of God in the Bible. The very first question is, Adam, where are you? Where are you? The Bible starts with God looking for his lost children, and the story won't end until he has found them. It is God's nature to find his lost kids. It is his heart to find his lost kids. Can you imagine what a gift this teaching would have been to those tax collectors and sinners who had leaned in? These lost souls even after an intimidating speech from Jesus on what it meant to be a disciple, a speech that didn't feel like they could possibly fulfill, they drew near him anyhow. They listened anyhow, hopeful that Jesus, that what he would say next might, might bring them hope. And what he said was this, you can become my disciples because I came looking for you. You are lost, and you know you are lost, but you are precious to me, and I came looking for you, and now I found you. This is the punchline 
to that hard teaching we heard last week on costly discipleship. This is what it demands, but good news is I found you even when you were lost. If you are a lost person today, and there are some seated here, if life seems to you hopeless, if you don't know the way home, this is the great good news of this text. Jesus is looking for you. Jesus came searching for you when you were hopelessly lost. And that is the gospel. That is the best good news you will ever receive. You were lost, but Jesus came looking. So that's the first and the clearest and most powerful truth to discover from this incredible, sweet chapter. The lost must be found by someone who loves them enough to go looking. And here's the second point. It's, I find it interesting. That kind of love seems foolish, doesn't it? The extent to which the seekers are willing to go find the lost in these stories, it seems like folly when you really think about it. Let's start with the shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. One sheep wanders off. Now, in a species not known for brain power, you might argue that this would kind of clean up the gene pool a little bit. You know, let the stupidest sheep wander off and get eaten up. It will be good for everyone. But that's not the heart of the shepherd. What does he do? He leaves behind the 99 slightly smarter sheep, and he goes looking for the one slightly stupider sheep. From a purely economic standpoint, this is folly. I mean, would you really risk the 99 for the sake of the one? Wouldn't it be wise for the shepherd to cut his losses? To consider it spoilage? Just, just make sure that your remaining 99 are safe. Nope. He throws caution to the wind. He leaves behind the 99 found and safe sheep to go after the one lost sheep. And it seems to us like folly, but not to the shepherd because that sheep must be found. And it's the same idea for the woman. The text says that she sought that coin diligently until she found it. That is a gross understatement of the Greek word. Because the Greek actually suggests she tore the place apart. She turned it upside down. It was a painstaking search. I imagine her husband coming home from work, and as he draws near their little hovel, he sees everything that he owns sitting out in the street, along with all of their furniture. And he just knows he better not say a word. He better just keep walking right down to the pub for dinner tonight because his wife is on a, a mission and he better lie low. I know how that feels. I've shown up when my wife is in cleaning mode and you better tread lightly. Right? Right. It seems like folly, but not to that woman. That lost coin must be found. And I know it's just a story, but if you take these two stories to their extreme, it's doubly foolish because the parties that each of them throw cost more than what was found was worth. I mean, it, it would have been cheaper to write off the lost sheep and the lost coin than to throw a big party for their friends. And by the way, a party would always include a sheep slaughtered for the barbecue. Now, I wonder which sheep had the privilege of being the main course that night thanks to 
that lost dum-dum sheep who was the guest of honor. How fair is that? But it wasn't about fairness. It's not about economics. It's about a love that compels the seeker to go searching and not give up until it is found, whatever the cost. It's about God's ridiculous grace. It's about the cross of Jesus, the extravagant, costly, foolish grace of God. No one deserves it. God might do better just to write us off. Instead, He came searching for us with all that He had. So if we have ears to hear today, and I hope you do, then what does this say to us? First of all, I think it is a sweet reminder of something that every one of us, especially those of us who have been longer in the Lord, every one of us needs to be reminded of. It is a truth that is captured in the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace. We sing these words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. We were lost. You were lost. I was lost, and I would have stayed that way if Jesus hadn't come looking for me. Whoever you are, however lost you might be, you are never so lost that your great shepherd isn't willing to come looking for you. How grateful must have been those tax collectors and those sinners that the first thing they heard after they gave their ears to Jesus was, guess what, all you lost people? I found you. Isn't that great? I found you. Here's the second thing that I think it better stir in us. We lost people who have been found. We better be seeking the lost ourselves. We who have been found, we better care about seeking the lost as well. And it might seem foolish at times. It might seem costly to, it as, to us at times. But we better be a church that is always looking for lost people. Remember, the tax collectors and sinners weren't the only ones who drew near Jesus. So did the religious insiders, the Pharisees and the scribes. The sinners said, Jesus, we want to hear what you have to say to us. What did the religious insiders do? They grumbled. Like the Jews in the wilderness, no matter what God had done before their very eyes. To save them, their default mode was grumbling, grouchy, miserable, grumbling. Which is so ironic, given that every story in this chapter ends the same way. Ends in joy. It ends in joy. The shepherd finds his sheep and it says he rejoices. He put it on his shoulders and then when he had the party, we read, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost and just so I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the woman who found her coin, she says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's all joy. And by the way, that story that we didn't talk about today, the prodigal son story, that ends with joy too, remember? Because dad throws a most joyous party that the grouchy elder brother wouldn't come inside to celebrate. Just like these grouchy religious insiders who listen to his teaching now. 
They were the grouchy elder brother in that parable, and they didn't even know it. They were so busy being critical and suspicious and protective of their spiritual domain that they could not stand the thought of these lost sinners intruding upon it. I hope, I pray that we will be a church with more and more and more folks in our crowd who consider themselves sinners, who, who consider themselves unworthy and unlovable but who can't help themselves. They have to lean in and listen on the chance that there might be a message of hope for them too. That is the revival that we are praying for every day. That's what revival looks like, that more and more lost people will be carried through our doors on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit to discover that they have come home. And if they do, when they do make their way home, those of us who have already been found, those of us who've been around here for a while, we better guard against being those grouchy, grumbling insiders who are more concerned about protecting status quo, about preserving what is comfortable and familiar to us than we are concerned with making room for the lost people that Jesus has brought home. I heard recently of a Chapel Hill person and if you're here, I hope you are here, I don't know who you are, but you are about to squirm. Because you told a new visiting family, seated nervously up in the balcony somewhere, that they had to move because they were sitting in your seat. <laughs> I roared when I heard this. I roared when I heard this. Why? You don't have a seat. There are no saved seats in this place. Next time, you move or sit on the floor if there's no room. Every one of us insiders must make place for outsiders, for the lost who hope to be found and who manage somehow to stumble through our doors. But I want to remind you, most of the lost don't know they are lost. That is the first point of this parable. Most lost must be found. And that's the whole point of our For the One initiative. We started this a year ago, and we haven't talked about it for a few weeks, but For the One is our attempt to encourage every single person who is found and has found a home here in this church to seek and to find and to invite and to welcome one lost person into faith and into community. I wonder how you're doing on that. I wonder, of those 721 sticks that have a name written on them, did you put one up there? And if not, why not? Jesus cared about the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you share the heart of the Great Shepherd? I pray, God, that this will be a church, always a church, that seeks and saves lost people through the hope of Jesus. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you that you came looking for me. I'll just start right there. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you didn't let my sin and my rebellion and my misbehavior chase you away, but you leaned in towards me. You came to me. And you found me when I was lost and invited me to be your disciple. And I thank you for the way that story is repeated hundreds of times in this sanctuary. Lord, we are grateful for your mercy. 
grateful for your costly grace which sought us out at the price of your own blood. Lord, I pray that you would keep us always as those who lean in to hear more and you would preserve us from becoming the grouchy insiders. God, save us from being critical people who are looking down our nose at those who are unworthy of us and don't want to make room for them because, well, it's our seat. God, save us from that. May we always have hearts that remember that we were found and saved and we long to have that experience shared by other lost people. Holy Spirit, you're the one that does that. You're the one that lifts up people now on your shoulders and carries them to places where they might be found. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray for revival. We pray for the lost that might be found and brought home. And may we be a part of that. For we ask it through Christ our Lord.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. place giving you praise and declaring your goodness.
that were gathered there to listen to more of what Jesus had to say after his challenging message on what it costs to be a disciple of his. One group said, we've got ears, Jesus. We want to hear you. We want to listen more. One group came to listen. The other group came to criticize. And I'm afraid the people of faith often kind of divide in those two terms, in those two directions. They continue to be lifelong listeners or they become set in their ways and become critics. May this church be full of lifelong listeners. And particularly, may we listen to the heart of God who loves finding lost people and be a part of that great search. 
Following this service, Pastor Julie will be in the back. She would love to make your acquaintance. It's a chance for you to meet our deacons, these wonderful people that serve the whole body of Christ. We have folks that love to pray, and they will be on either side under the prayer banners. If you have anything at all that you need prayer for, please make your way over there. And we're going to close as we always do because none of this is possible if it's not for the fullness of the Spirit in us. It is the Spirit of God who came searching for us, the Spirit of Jesus who came searching for us when we are lost. We need more of that Spirit so that we can be renewed in our discovery and be used by God to find others. So raise your hands up and receive a refill this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His perfect peace both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of, all of God's under-shepherds said, Amen.